Hello. Welcome to Research Time, a new podcast designed to highlight translational research from Queen's University. The main goal of these podcasts will be to focus on the researcher and their journey from lab to discovery. My name's Dr. Charlie Highmarch, and I'm a genomics researcher at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Stephen Archer, who just published important research entitled SARS-CoV-2 Mitochondriopathy in COVID-19 Pneumonia Exacerbates Hypoxemia. He published this in a high-impact journal called Redox Biology. Dr. Archer is a world-class research scientist, a clinical doctor, and he's also head of Department of Medicine at Queen's University. Today, we're going to find out how he went from cardiology to coronavirus and what challenges he and his team underwent. So, Dr. Archer, in addition to running a research laboratory, a major hospital, and adapting to the same problems and fears that everyone went through during the pandemic, you've also managed to find time to perform research into a viral pandemic, an area that you'd not previously worked. How exactly did you achieve this? Well, first, Charlie, thanks for having me in with some of my friends and colleagues to tell you about our story. I would say the answer to your question in short form is by finding great people who had more expertise than I did in various areas, including virology, molecular biology, so we could begin to apply our knowledge to coming up with a solution. And I would flash back in time, it was 2020, the universities were largely closed and people were working remotely, laboratories were closed. And I had the strong view that research is an essential service and that researchers are essential workers and they should be at work. And so as we began this project, part of it was wanting to make a small contribution to COVID-19 and its cure, or at least understanding its how it caused the problem. But part of it was also wanting to get the team back to work and allowing them to apply their collective intelligence to this problem. Okay, so, so what was the aha moment when you realized that your lab would be well-placed to pivot the research that you currently do towards COVID-19 research? Well, I have to confess, I'm a cardiologist, so this virology is not my area of expertise, but what I saw in my role as head of medicine was the epidemiology of this epidemic. So you could see that there were millions of people being affected, and of the millions of people being infected, about 5% got seriously ill and 1% died. And the 5% that got ill got sick in a very interesting way. They be their blood oxygen levels became extremely low, and yet often the patients weren't feeling the normal degree of shortness of breath that you might expect. And doctors started calling this happy hypoxemia, low oxygen, but you're not sensing it somehow. And also we began to learn that they were shunting blood through their lungs. So normally you have to know this to understand the story. The lung has its own circulation. And when you have pneumonia, there's a sensor in those blood vessels and it diverts blood away from the pneumonia to other parts of the lung. But in COVID-19, Despite the pneumonia, the blood was flowing through areas of the lung it shouldn't go through. And so we wound up with people that were very blue, very hypoxic, but they weren't sensing this. So while the rest of the world was trying to find a vaccine and trying to research vaccines, you were interested in understanding the mechanisms by which this virus caused damage. So why did you take this approach rather than the vaccine approach? Well, I think the, I'm a huge fan of vaccines, and vaccines have been like a miraculous turn of events in our favor in this battling this pandemic. But understanding diseases is really critical to actually coming up with cures or effective therapies. And one thing I knew was this is the third coronavirus pandemic in just 20 years. So we had uh, a SARS, then we had MERS, and now we have COVID-19. And it's very unlikely that this will just go away and be the last pandemic. Moreover, I 
like a lot of us, I think we were surprised to find out that 20 to 30% of our fellow Canadians are unwilling to take vaccines. So as miraculous as they are, they won't use them for a variety of reasons. And many of the drugs that are available are either not available in Canada, are expensive, or have toxicities. So clearly there was a niche there that we wanted to explore. Our initial hope was just to understand. Obviously, it's a farther bridge to cross to actually come up with a cure. So I just want to take a moment just to kind of better understand the title of your paper. You use a word called mitochondriopathy. Can you just explain what that might mean? Absolutely. So I think most people that went through high school know that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, and they have an image that it makes this molecule ATP and provides energy. But in fact, although there are inherited mitochondrial diseases, mitochondria are often targets in really common human diseases like cancer and heart disease. And our lab studies these uh, acquired mitochondrial diseases. And mitochondria are oxygen sensors. That's another fact that's helpful for listeners to this podcast to understand. They actually detect oxygen. So they use oxygen to make ATP. So it's probably logical that they also sense oxygen and then they invoke physiologic responses to optimize their own oxygen supply. And another sort of fun fact that I think people probably don't know, they know the powerhouse of the cell, but they probably don't know that our mitochondria were once bacteria back in the primordial soup. And so there's a longstanding issue of bad blood between viruses and bacteria. And our mitochondria are really glorified bacteria that have come to inhabit our cells, which sounds very much like mitochlorians and star uh, wars, but is true. Okay, so these mitochondria became the targets of these viral invaders, and it was the mitochondria that were listing effects in the lung cells. Well, it turns out, you know, viruses are expert at killing us, and they do it by injecting their RNA, in this case, their genetic code, and then they use our cell as like a photocopier to make a new copy of themselves. But in the course of doing that, they affect our nucleus, where all the genes are, and they turn on and turn off thousands of genes. In fact, we found using a technique that uh, you're an expert in, uh, next-gen sequencing, we found that, in fact, the biggest panel of genes they were turning on and off related to the health of mitochondria. And that within two hours, if you can believe it, of infecting an airway cell, uh, which is one of the main target cells in COVID-19, they affected uh, hundreds of genes within the mitochondria. And the nature of that toxicity was to cause damage to the mitochondria that would lead to a form of cell death called apoptosis or programmed cell death. Okay, that's, that's very interesting because we, we think about viruses as being you have a virus and you have an infection and you or you're healthy. But what you're saying is that there is some sort of time course here that, that has significance to the way that these air cell, air, airway cells respond. That's true. And we'd see this in patients. The, for example, on day one, when they tested positive for COVID because they perhaps had a fever and a sore throat, they weren't too bad. But by day two or three, their oxygen levels were starting to dip. And this now applies to that 5% group who became seriously ill and wound up in hospital. And as they became hypoxemic with low blood oxygen levels, that's when I believe their mitochondria were being damaged, uh, not only triggered lung cell death or apoptosis, but also impairing the ability of the lung blood vessels at the same time to divert blood away from the pneumonia into parts of the lung that were still healthy. And that double whammy then really led to a person that didn't know they were short of breath, but had plummeting oxygen levels, having a damaged sensor and lung injury. Okay. So obviously in, in, in the last two years, you, you faced lots of challenges and, and actually getting research 
to operate during a pandemic at a university, supervising students and running a hospital. What kind of challenges did you face that you can sort of share with our audience? Well, the first one is sort of a philosophical argument. As I mentioned, research is an essential service, just like doctors are and nurses are essential healthcare workers. So I knew that researchers had something to contribute. But as an example, I reached out to my friend and colleague, Dr. Gary Levy, and you're going to hear more about Dr. Levy's story and what he did in this uh, effort. Well, so thanks, Stephen. Um, first, I just want to say how pleased I was to be asked by Dr. Archer uh, to be part of this exciting research team. Um, the impetus for us to be involved, first of all, as a clinician, is the fact that I'm a transplant physician. And as many of you may know, infectious diseases in the setting of transplantation are extremely dangerous and often end in a very poor outcome. For example, in the first SARS wave, which uh, took place, uh, transplant patients actually fared extremely badly around the world and in the Toronto program in particular. And what was really interesting was that the lung transplanted patients actually had the poorest outcomes and if they became infected with uh, SARS-1, uh, they usually succumb to the disease. Uh, so based upon that, our area of interest, which had been longstanding, was in coronaviruses. Um, I actually went away and trained uh, as a postdoctoral fellow to learn uh, about coronaviruses and uh, trained with experts in the field. And the impetus behind that was not lung disease, but rather liver disease. And we were looking uh, for a model uh, of uh, severe liver disease. Um, and we did establish this model uh, and then brought back when we when I relocated back to Toronto, I brought uh, a series of coronaviruses, which uh, we actually created. Uh, and we're studying them not only for liver disease, but lung disease. Uh, and our focus was on pathogenesis and both viral pathogenesis as well as immunopathogenesis. And what we discovered was there was a commonality between lung and liver disease in that the, the lung and the liver have the largest number of macrophages uh, in the body. And so it's not surprising uh, that the spectrum of diseases which we often see in lung, which is severe pneumonia and uh, destruction, is not that dissimilar from when you get a viral infection of the liver and you get against uh, destruction of the liver. Uh, when Dr. Archer approached me, we had created uh, a mouse model of uh, SARS, uh, which we generated by uh, producing a subvariant of a coronavirus called mouse hepatitis hepatitis virus strain one. Uh, and we showed that this substrain could produce a disease very similar to SARS. And we then went through and tried to define what were the what were the properties of this particular subvariant that accounted for the disease. Um, we we showed that first of all the high replication rate 
uh, was partly responsible that the S protein or the surface protein, which binds to its receptor, also accounted for uh, the disease, but that innate, innate immunity and macrophage uh, activation with production of inflammatory cytokines also contributed to the disease. And when we looked at the lung tissue, we showed that the spectrum of disease that was seen was very similar, not only to SARS strain one, which was the previous strain, but is very similar to COVID-19. So when Dr. Archer approached us, we were very pleased. We grew up uh, the mouse hepatitis virus and uh, we uh, then sent him inocula so that he could carry out his studies. We had not done a uh, detailed examination of mitochondria, although we did know that the uh, disease spectrum involved high levels of tumor necrosis factor, interleukin-6 and interferon gamma, which did account uh, from an innate immunity point of view to program death and uh, apoptosis. So it seemed logical that our two labs could work together and uh, share uh, this animal model to gain further insights uh, into the pathogenesis of uh, COVID-19. And Dr. Archer's group took up this challenge beautifully uh, and uh, the MHV1 model has turned out to be a very, very nice model uh, to study this. I think that going forward, uh, the plans would be that we have made recombinant viruses, uh, which are using the backbone of either a strong lung pathogenic uh, strain like MHV1 or a weak pathogenic strain like MHVA59. And we can provide these to Dr. Archer and he can do further dissection uh, to try to define what the basis, what the virologic basis of this disease. Uh, and I think Dr. Banerjee, who will be on uh, this call later, who is a strong molecular virologist, uh, will take advantage of this. Uh, so that those, we hope that we'll be able to continue the story. Uh, the second aspect, which we're also very excited about, is that using this animal model as the Queen's group starts to develop uh, potential therapeutic agents, they can use this mouse model both to study uh, potential toxicity uh, patterns so that we can develop appropriate dose therapeutic uh, amounts, but at the same time, uh, determine that this these drugs or putative drugs that will be developed will attenuate the disease. Uh, because although we know the vaccine has proven to be a tremendous uh, advance, uh, we know that people who are even vaccinated can continue to get infected with these agents. Uh, the lung tissue is particularly susceptible and they will go on to get uh, pneumonia and as Dr. Archer pointed out, we do not believe that this particular variant of the coronavirus will be the last coronavirus that humans will encounter. So that the knowledge that we hope to gain from these studies will not only have implications for COVID-19, but for future disease going forward. So I think to tell the next part of the story about using the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself, I'm going to get Charlie to bring in my friend, Dr. Aaron J. Banerjee. Um, Aaron Jay runs Vito or works at Vito, and Vito, the vaccine 
Institute and Infectious Disease Organization in Saskatoon is one of the few places in the country and indeed in the world where you can actually handle a dangerous virus like SARS-CoV-2 or Ebola, things of that nature that require special containment called level three. And Dr. Banerjee and his graduate students were an instrumental part of this and we wouldn't have been able to do the next generation transcriptomics or some of the other important work that's in this paper in redox biology without Aaron Jay's uh, partnership. Well, thank you, Dr. Archer. My lab at Vito, we've been investigating high path coronavirus for about eight years now. Did that as a grad student, then I moved to McMaster as a postdoc. We were among the first teams in Canada to isolate SARS-CoV-2 from COVID-19 patients. So obviously we started working with SARS-CoV-2 as early as February of 2020. And at the same time, my colleague, Dr. Archer, was investigating mitochondriopathy or the impact of infections in mitochondria at Queen's University. So when Dr. Archer reached out to me for a potential collaboration, it was fantastic for us because we don't know much about mitochondria. And of course, he's a global leader in mitochondria-related science. And we were looking at how SARS-2 impacts our host immune responses. How does the virus shut down immune responses? How does the virus shut down and interact with proteins in our cells that are critical for those immune responses. So when Dr. Archer proposed to investigate the impact of SARS-2 on our mitochondria, I thought that was very complimentary. And I discussed it with my new group. I only started in April 2021 as a new PI. So I was just setting up a lab and a postdoc in the lab, Dr. Kaushal Baid, and a new PhD student in the lab, Victoria Gonzalez, decided to jump on this project and help out Dr. Archer, Dr. Levy, and Dr. Kolpitz. So we have Dr. Wu with us also today. And uh, as you've mentioned, uh, Stephen, that that there were challenges about working with this virus. And sometimes you had to make use of models of various descriptions, either cells or animals. Can you tell us a little bit about these models that you use to help study this mitochondriopathy? Okay. So we used an animal model, which is a mouse model of uh, mouse uh, mouse hepatitis virus, which is uh, also a beta coronavirus, which belongs to the same family of uh, SARS-CoV-2. And we infected this mouse with the MHV1, which can cause pneumonia in the mouse. And we challenged the mice with hypoxia, which is a low oxygen level. And we uh, monitor the right ventricular pressure using a catheter. And we see that in the normal mice, there is an increase uh, with response to the hypoxia. But in the uh, mouse, in the mice that are infected with MHV1, there is no change in the uh, right ventricular pressure, which mimics the hypoxemia in the patients. And you know what I would just add, Charlie, is what Dr. Wu did was very elegant. So can you imagine doing cardiac catheterization, putting a catheter into the heart of a tiny mouse? The, the mouse heart beats 600 times a minute, and the size of the heart is smaller than an M&M. And she was doing heart catheterization on these mice, and then we do CAT scans on them to look at their lung. And they developed a pneumonia very similar to what we see in patients with COVID-19. And the heart cath showed, as Dr. Wu was saying, that these mice lost hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. And then she gave them a therapy, a drug that restored hypoxic constriction, and their, which is the oxygen sensing mechanism I was telling you was damaged. And sure enough, their blood oxygen level rose again. So I'm not saying we should do this in patients, but at least in these mice with coronavirus pneumonia, 
hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction was gone, causing low oxygen. Fixing it raised the oxygen level, which is pretty miraculous. Yeah, I, I think that's amazing. That's an amazing addition to the research. And what's clearly falling out of this and the number of expert authors that you have on the paper here is that it really was a team effort. And we have Dr. Dasgupta here as well. So perhaps, uh, Ashish, you can sort of tell us a little bit about other ways that you, you, you facilitated research into coronavirus uh, in the last two years in Dr. Archer's laboratory. Thank you, Charlie. As Dr. Archer mentioned, that we didn't have a biosafety level 3 laboratory. So we used lentivirus to express individual SARS-CoV-2 proteins in lung cells and studied the effect of these individual proteins on the lung cells. And we observed that these individual SARS-CoV-2 proteins caused programmed cell death, which we called apoptosis, inhibited the proliferation of these cells and also blocked the cell cycle progression. So, so what you're saying is it's not just all the proteins of the coronavirus that can make a difference. When you just put in a single individual proteins, they seem to be having an impact in the animal and in the cell models that you use. That's correct. Okay. And you know what's interesting about what Dr. Desgupta did is that, and Dr. Kuang Hui Chen is that basically they were using a lentiviral vector, which is uh, derived from the human HIV virus that causes AIDS. And they were using that viral vector to move this gene that encodes a protein into the cell. And you will probably not be very familiar with viral proteins if you're a normal listener to this podcast, but you actually sort of do know something about it because you've probably heard about the spike protein, right? The spike protein is what the vaccine is directed against. So these proteins are the signature of this virus. And what we were finding is we didn't study the spike protein so much, but it, of the many other viral proteins that are made, we focused on a couple with fun names like M the letter M, and NSP7 and NSP9. And what we found and showed was that these proteins would go right to our mitochondria and bind a hold of them and actually interact with mitochondrial proteins and damage the mitochondria. So in essence, we could replicate, I wouldn't say all of COVID-19, but much of the features of COVID-19, many of them were replicated with a single protein, implying that it is protein-protein interactions, that somehow this viral protein recognizes us as the host just like getting back to my virus bacteria fight, they recognize us, they don't like us, and they target us with their proteins. So, so it's like uh, alien versus predator, and we're just the innocent bystanders. In part, in part. So they take over our genes and they control the mothership, which is our nucleus, and turn on genes to damage our mitochondria. And what they don't accomplish that way, they generate their own proteins, and those proteins physically bind to our proteins and stop them from working. I'd like to just uh, get some comments from my friend and collaborator, Dr. Che Kolpitz, who's a, an assistant professor here at Queen's University and uh, an expert virologist who taught me a lot of what I know about virology. And also, I, I want to thank Che before she even makes her comments, because she's the one that basically gave us the lentivirus that we used to introduce some of the SARS-CoV-2 proteins into cells and also generously provided us with HCoV-OC43, which is a very long name, but it's another human coronavirus. And I I should say that even though it can be used in a level two facility, one interesting thing about that virus is it has caused deaths in nursing home patients and causes pneumonia, just like SARS-CoV-2. So it's uh, a serious virus that causes serious human diseases. But Dr. Kolpitz will tell you more about this. First of all, thank you for having me. And also, Stephen, thank you for inviting us to be part of this project. It's been great working with such an incredible team on what has been a very interesting project. I'm a molecular virologist by training, and my lab focuses on RNA viruses. There are a lot of RNA viruses out there, including coronaviruses like SARS-CoV-2, flaviviruses like dengue and Zika, 
filoviruses like Ebola, um, and so on and so forth. The thing is, we don't have effective antiviral drugs for many of these viruses. So my group has been focused on trying to find broad-spectrum antivirals that may work against multiple RNA viruses, including ones we don't know about yet that may emerge in the future, um, as you've alluded to previously. So one thing that these viruses have in common is that they all need our cells in order to replicate and make new copies of themselves. So what we're trying to do is to target the components in cells that many viruses need. And by disrupting these virus-host interactions, we hope to find therapies with broad-spectrum antiviral activities because many viruses interact um, with cells in similar ways. So when the pandemic started, we turned our attention to coronaviruses and we set up coronavirus models in the lab, including um, HCOV OC43, which Dr. Archer had mentioned, and HCOV 229E as well. So these are common cold coronaviruses that account for about 30% of all common colds, and they cause more severe disease in elderly populations um, and other vulnerable people, much like um, SARS-CoV-2 does. So importantly, these common cold coronaviruses gave us a tool to study coronavirus host interactions and identify shared features that may also be applicable to more highly pathogenic coronaviruses like SARS-CoV-2. As it turns out, um, these coronaviruses target the mitochondria, as Dr. Utcher has described, which contributes to their ability to cause disease and gives us a new target to develop antiviral drugs that can not only block the ability of the virus to replicate, but also may prevent patients from developing severe COVID-19 pneumonia. So it's quite an exciting finding. And while there is still a lot of work to be done to actually develop these drugs, it provides us with a strategy to treat coronavirus disease and it may help us to be better prepared for coronaviruses that may emerge in future, because SARS-CoV-2 is likely not the last coronavirus um, that we're going to face. So if there's another pandemic, coronavirus pandemic in, in the coming years, and, and you, as you've said, there's been three in the past 10, will this research help us moving forward? Is this research over or, or is this the time to redouble our efforts as a scientific community in order to combat the impact? Uh, I think the answer to that, I would even uh, ask for my friend, Dr. Levy, to chime in with a quote on this, because Gary was involved with this long before I was and actually is a legitimate viral expert. And one of the things I learned from him early on was he had prepared this MHV1 model when he was trying to combat SARS, which, as you remember, was a terrible infection that had a much higher mortality rate than COVID-19. And so Gary developed this model of putting the MHV1 virus into the lung like Dr. Wu did. And he published it, and he showed that this would be a great model. And of course, what was Gary thinking? Well, he'll speak in his own words, but my understanding, he was thinking of this is a great model to test drugs, antiviral drugs, other drugs to combat the disease. And I think what our team is doing right now is we are developing novel molecules that protect the mitochondria and say, well, you may be infected, but you're not going to go on and have programmed cell death, or you may be infected, but you're not going to lose your oxygen sensing. And by protecting the mitochondria, we hope to protect the person and their lung. I completely agree with what Dr. Archer has proposed. Um, research is, first of all, an ongoing uh, process. And we know that these viruses have the capability of mutating and changing, and they will change uh, their properties. Uh, very much like the first SARS versus the second SARS. And as Dr. Archer said, I believe there will be another one. Um, so what we learned 
from the work in this can be applied directly to protect the mitochondria. I think there will be some commonality features. Uh, so some of the therapeutics that we that the group goes on to generate will be very useful to protect. The second aspect is as we delve more fully and fur, uh, further into viral pathogenesis, we'll start to understand uh, what aspects of the virus account for the pneumovirulence as opposed to, let's say, the hepatic virulence versus other aspects. And we'll be able to do that using molecular virologic techniques, which this team has great uh, expertise in. So we could make recombinant viruses and we could then, this will then lead to a whole new series of vaccines which will be exciting and can be tailored uh, to these different viruses. Okay, so fantastic. Have you any final comments before we log off? Yes, I think one of the things that's important about this is this research cost already like half a million dollars. And if you look at the funding of the scientists that have done this work, you, they've come from all over the world. So people have come from India and China and Brazil and England to do this research. and. It costs uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to employ these talented people who devote their lives and work like 70, 80 hours a week doing this research. And in Canada, we really don't have a funding mechanism for that. We really, all forms of research are important, but biomedical research is not only important to human health, but it's extremely expensive. There's a core cost of doing science. And we need funding agencies like CHR to recognize that the only way to make this work is when labs are productive to have stable funding. The concept of a company potentially going out of business every four to five years on a grant cycle just doesn't work. And the only reason I was able to do this during a pandemic is because I was able to recruit Kwang Hui and Ashish from NIH in the United States where they were working, having immigrated to the United States to be scientists. Then I was able to recruit Dan Chen who immigrated to Canada from China. And we've got Pachi Lima. Dr. Lima has immigrated here from Brazil. Charlie, I know you're from the UK, as is Oliver Jones, who's part of this project. And so we had a vast collection of scientists, but money is required to do that. And right now, the public may not know this, but the way f funding works is every five years you apply for a grant and you have one chance in five of success, which means even if you apply two or three times, you still don't have a 50-50 chance of getting funding. Now, I am grateful to CHR. In fact, they did fund this project um, after several attempts, which is absolutely critical. And I also want to thank uh, the Henderson Foundation, which is a philanthropic foundation, which also was instrumental in funding our research, and CIMO, which is the Southeastern uh, Medical Organization, which is our uh, alternate funding plan. Um, We'd also be lost without the resources of QCPU, Queen's Cardiopulmonary Unit. So this is a five-year-old translational research center that has all these fancy platforms like next-gen sequencing and microscopes, cell culture, et cetera. And the six scientists that run that allow us to do high-tech science. So basically, when you look at this journey, it was starting with the recognition that research is an essential service and that researchers are essential and it was building a collaborative team that spanned the country. And then it was two and a half years of hard work to eventually get our paper published. And uh, we're delighted you took the time to talk to us today. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Dr. Archer and his team for discussing their research today. 
If you'd like to know more about this or other translational research from Queen's University, you can follow us on Twitter at QueensUTime or check out the description for more details. If you want to hear this again or share, you can find this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you usually find your podcasts. Thank you very much.